from the dude logic the place for no holds barred informative and entertaining banter i'm your host chris and i'm in the studio with aj what's going on y'all happy to be back for another week as always you know we love what we do here on dude logic and we're so happy to have you as an audience to interact with to just enjoy please keep writing in let us know what you want to hear because we're never going to get tired of interacting with you guys we got another good one for you this week can't wait let's get it done chris all right you got anything for us this week aj yeah man you know what like uh I know they call me the mouth on the show, you know, and, and you're the mind, but I'd, I'd like to think that I have a pretty good mind on my on my shoulders too, right? So I've been doing a lot of uh, introspective thinking this week, and and you know when I when I go through periods like that, I like to write a few things down, and I had one a quote that that I I spoke that I felt was, you know, interesting, so I wrote it down, and I was going to share that with everybody on Dude Logic. It's uh, it, it reads like this: You will know. You are following your passion and purpose when you're required to take a leap of faith to do it. Hmm. What do you think about it, Chris? Oh, man, that's really reflective of a lot of the things that I've seen in terms of people who have been successful in their walk, and especially in my field. They've taken a leap of faith to really get there. You think about the things that it takes to be successful, especially in a field where innovation is, is of the utmost importance. In order to be innovative, you have to be different. And in order to be different, you have to take that leap of faith. And so I completely agree with that. Um, that if it's something that you're trying to achieve and it's something that will end up being a career for you, it's got to be innovative. Otherwise, people won't gravitate towards it. Yeah, and that was that was my feeling when I uh, was just thinking about my life and, and what I've been doing recently and and how I ended up on the path that I am on that when I found my passion, when I found my purpose, uh, it required me to step outside of my comfort zone in order to be able to really pursue it to the fullest of my potential. And I'm still doing that. I'm still still forging ahead, still doing things, still making myself uncomfortable because I feel like it's it's just past your comfort zone is when you really start to make positive changes in your life. And, you know, coming from the last thing that I was in, uh, you know, uh, as far as a career is concerned, you know, my last job before deciding on a career path as a personal trainer was uh, not necessarily something that I was happy doing, something that it was really um, that I had a passion for or, you know, really just I was stuck and but I was in a place where I was stuck and I was comfortable stuck. And it took me realizing that you know, I have to take a chance to really do what it is that I wanted to do. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. No, you're not going to make as much money starting out when you're trying to drum up business, when you're trying to promote yourself, you're trying to find clients as you would with this steady paycheck. But knowing that if I put my faith in myself, if I put my faith, you know, for myself, I, I, I put my faith in the Lord because, you know, that's who I am. That's what I follow. But it, it, takes faith of some sort of some kind in my opinion to really take a chance on something that you want in life and uh i don't know i just felt like it was something that would reign true for not only me but anyone and everyone that's really looking for a passion in life yeah i think so and i think that even when you're talking about things like starting your own business or you're talking about things even like getting involved with the community organizations 
it really takes a wholehearted effort. And especially if you want to do something that will have a, a profound impact on the community. Like I, an example is there was a Saturday Science Education Academy that we started when, when I was in school. And it was something where we went into the community and we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we didn't have uh, private donors that were able to help us out. We had to get stuff from the lab, you know, borrow things from the lab to be able to teach the kids or whatnot. But it took that leap of faith to be able to get it to a point now where it's actually its own 501c3. Nice. And so, you know, you, you really have to take the initiative to put everything you have into something because that's the only way you're going to get everything back. I mean, I, you can't imagine that if you were going to put 30% of what you have in something that you're going to get 100% back. You have to invest what you're going to get. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the name of that organization again, Chris? You know, I know we we don't, you know, we don't really push our own agenda very often, but I feel like that's something that deserves a little bit of uh, time. So Yeah, yeah. It's called Science Education Academy. It's in Philadelphia. It particularly serves the underserved areas of West Philadelphia. And it is for students in grades two through eight. Okay. And they learn about different science things. We have different units throughout the school year. And actually, we partner with a lot of the schools in the area to bring kids to the program. But okay. it's every Saturday they have different units. Uh, the second graders, I mean, it's all hands-on stuff, too. The second graders learn from everything up to about everything up from physics to about biology. Chemistry starts generally in the fourth grade. And in the sixth grade, we begin, we begin a process where we actually take them through doing science projects and they end up submitting their science projects to a science fair. Awesome. So we teach them the scientific method, how to come up with a poster, how to present your work, all that type of stuff. And really it's about getting underserved minority students interested in the sciences. And the feeling is that if you start early, it'll progress and it will plant a seed within them that will begin to reap harvest when they get into the college level that's excellent and i feel like that is a more than worthy cause uh but you know i don't want to take over all of our our beginning section of the, the 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 show man you know i just wanted to share a little musing that was something that i was thinking about this week but what, what do you have going on chris what are, what are some things that you want to talk about not much man you know all my stuff is you know science inundates my life right it, it's science and medicine are, are what i do basically every day and it doesn't stop with just me being at work. Obviously, it, yeah, I have to, I have to immerse myself in it with every aspect of my life. And, and I say that because I often have like a feed manager where you know I listen to do Logic podcasts and I listen to other podcasts, um, a lot of blogs that I follow or whatnot. But then you can also use that feed manager to look at different stories from academic journals and things of that nature. So I, I use that for that purpose a lot. And one came through my feed the other day, and I forwarded it immediately to you because it was so interesting that I said I wanted to talk about it on Dude Logic. And this is about a CDC study that was recently released, and it was one of the first documented cases of female-to-female -female transmission of HIV. And so this actually happened in Texas, and... The, the whole thing was that the woman, this woman in Texas likely infected her female partner with HIV through sexual contact. 
and that's the strongest evidence today. Now, I know a lot of you all out there are saying, hey, I mean, shouldn't that be obvious that you can transmit HIV from female to female if you can do it through male to male or heterosexual sex? That's not actually the case because a lot of the previous studies were basically done with confounders. So things that could confound the data include intravenous drug use. Uh, they could include heterosexual sex. And so if you have a lot of those confounders in there, you can't specifically indicate causation between HIV transmission and the homosexual sex between women. That is a pretty big deal, man. Yeah. Uh, but it's something that we need to know about. Like, So ladies who are out there, if you are engaging in female female sexual activity, be careful. Be careful. You know, it's not Absolutely. something that you can can take for granted. And for anybody that's out here engaging in sexual activity, be safe. We mean that here on Toot Logic. Like with <laughs> everything I have in me. Take care of yourself, man. We want to make sure you guys are around for years and years to come. And that's not just so you can listen to Dude Logic. However, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> but we want to see you go out and have your families and live your lives and do the things that you're supposed to do to bring this world to a better place. So stay safe, y'all. Stay safe. Yeah, I mean, the, and the reason I brought it up, obviously, was because we do talk about a lot of risque things on Dude Logic, and in particular, last episode, we talking about postponing and, and things like that. And we just want to make sure that we make it clear to the listeners that we are not proponents of unsafe sexual practices. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. There is nothing fun about contracting any STI and uh, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> don't like, let's just, do it. Let's avoid that with all costs. That is not dude logic or chick logic. I don't know. It's not logical at all. So <laughs> let's keep it. Let's keep it safe. So AJ, how was your St. Patrick's Day, man? Oh man, it was great. You know, I got a chance to get out of town. Uh, you know, I went down to Savannah to celebrate in what is easily the best St. Patrick's Day celebration in the country. You know, I might be a little biased on that, uh, but. It was actually my first time. You know, I've been here in Georgia pretty much my entire life, but I never made it down to Savannah to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And and uh, I will say it is definitely worth checking out. Um, if you've been to Mardi Gras, you know, I, I would say you you will you will and you enjoyed Mardi Gras, you will enjoy St. Patrick's Day in Savannah, Georgia. Trust me on that. Nice. It's worth checking out. It's worth checking out. Hey, I mean, I know we might argue about this, but I really do think that St. Patty's Day here in Boston is a little bit better than what you experienced, sir. Man, look. Home of the St. Patty's Day. All I know is I met some young ladies from Boston who told me while I was in Savannah that they come to Savannah to celebrate St. Patrick's Day and they leave Boston because Boston is a snooze. That's what I was told. Man, That's all I'm they don't know where they're going, man. That's all that is. Hey, you know, well, I think they know where they're going because they, they went well out of their way to pay for either some plane tickets or to drive all the way down from Boston to make it to Savannah, Georgia. So it must be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get uh, you didn't get any drunk catchers while you were down there, did you? <laughs> Hold on. Uh, you want to remind me of what a drunk catcher is just just for my, for my sake and for the sake of our listeners, Chris? Yeah, a drunk catcher is an obstacle or something that gets in the way of someone who is inebriated. Hey, 
I know I have a bruise on my on my shin, and I don't know where it came from. <laughs> so no comment. No comment. Gotcha. So so category five. Maybe not nah, quite. Nah, not not quite a category five. Close, probably. Good good category four. What are we on the? Uh, we're gonna go with a amber alert. We're gonna go with the amber alert. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but it cool. was good times, man. Good times. I, <laughs> I, I would definitely go back next year, and, and it's in the plans to do it again. You know, it's a great little trip. Hopefully, next year you'll be able to join me, and uh, we can officially settle the score as to whether Savannah or Boston has the better of the St. Patrick's Day yeah. uh, celebrations. Uh, so, would you say it's a it's as good of a time as as we had in college? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Definitely, definitely a good time. Good time. Good people. Uh, you know, Savannah is, is is one of those cities, man. You know, the hospitality is there, and they appreciate us when we're in town. They appreciate what we bring to the city. So, it's definitely a place that I think anybody and everybody would enjoy going for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Okay. Whether you're whether you're taking your family for the celebration, the parade, etc., or you're going down there to kick it with your boys or your girls. There is an opportunity for anybody and everybody to have a good time. So, big ups to Savannah. Thank you very much for hosting me and and, and uh, showing your boy a good time. Nice, nice. Well, I mentioned college because you know that that segues into our main topic, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, but you are good at your segue abilities. <laughs> I will say that. Well, the main topic for today is looking at historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs and talking about the HBCU experience. Is it worth it? And what are the benefits of the HBCU experience? The main topic. So, you know, AJ, I often call you my brother from another mother, right? Yes, sir. Yep. But I am pleased to have phoning in with us, my brother from the same mother. That we sounds good. <laughs> we want to welcome Daryl to the show. What's up? How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, life is good. Cannot complain, sir. It's great to have you on the show, man. You are always my favorite of the two brothers anyway. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, AJ. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me. <laughs> so, as we mentioned, the subject for today's show is the historically black college and university experience. What's in it? And so we, we really want to focus on HBCUs and the value that they bring to their students, the value that they bring to communities, and the value that they bring to the black community in general. So we all in this conversation have at one point in time attended an HBCU. And I just wanted to get each one of you all's input on how you felt that experience in particular enriched your life. All right, I'm I'm going to go ahead and uh, give the honors to Daryl. I would I would love for you to go ahead and, and give your input first, sir, as a guest. Okay, well, obviously, as you said before, we've all had the HBCU experience, and from my standpoint, I think it allows us to see not only where we've come from, but how far we still have to go to meet the standards of other major institutions, if you will. It allows us to see 
you know, the struggles that we had to go through in order to be half as good. Because the old saying goes that we have to be twice as good just to get half. So you get that nurturing from the professors at a smaller institution, which allows you to still have that community feel, and it prepares you for larger-scale education. But you never lose sight of how far we've come. No, I mean, I, I agree with those points. Um, you know, it definitely is an opportunity for, I mean, like any small institution, HBCUs being smaller institutions, uh, it gives, it allows for more one-on-one interactions with your professors. Um, and when those professors are doing their job and they are taking these children under their wing and trying to teach them what it means to be, you know, contributing members to society, uh, to, to bring something to the table that you haven't had to bring to the table before they're able to actually help and mold these children much more effectively because of the small school size. Uh, but I think one of the things that I wanted to speak on uh, that Chris and I actually have talked about in the past is, you know, being that I went to Morehouse College, um, being at an HBCU, an historically black college or university, what that does for a young black child is measurable for certain people who have not grown up in an environment where they saw successful black people on a regular basis. Um, for a kid that struggled to get out of, you know, the hood or wherever it was that he was growing up or she, for that matter, when they were around people who are impoverished, who have, don't have a lot going on for them, are struggling just to maintain and haven't been exposed to professional, uh, successful people of color, black people of color, it's an opportunity for them to go to an environment where that exists. And not only does it exist, but it thrives. And this is the cream of the crop from everywhere coming to focus on getting an education to do better for themselves. I don't know if you'll go to any other historically black college and university where so many are first generation students, you know, the first person in their parent and their family to go to college. Uh, and I think that is that that environment is immeasurable it's it's hard to put you know especially even for the the kids who have come there who grew up and they they were around affluence or they did see positive role models they had black people in their lives that showed them a better way you're still putting yourself in an environment that calls you to to step your game up um and i did appreciate that you know chris well, yeah, I mean, I think it's paramount to anything. I mean, you go to an HBCU and you see these people who are in positions of power, whether they're the president or they're in higher administration, or even you you look at your professors. That's not the case when you go to any other type of institution. And so you have this unique environment where those people who are making decisions, who are training the leaders of tomorrow look like you whereas i can say from experience going to a majority institution as well uh at the undergraduate and the graduate level you see less and less people that look like you and as you increase in the ranks as you go up to go to professional school or graduate school you see less and less of those people who are even among your peers mm -hmm. and so it's paramount for people to be able to see that 
someone who looks like me can be successful. They can forge this path that I can clearly see. And I think what that speaks to is that a lot of students who may come from impoverished communities and go to majority institutions, especially those majority institutions that are very on high academic standards, Mm -hmm. don't necessarily get the push or the support that they need to be able to clearly see the goal that they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that someone who goes to a majority institution is missing out on something. That's just saying that it's right in front of your face at an HBCU. And I myself would not hesitate at all to send my son to a Morehouse College or or any other HBCU that he wanted to go to. Because I know that at many of the HBCUs, the standard of education is not lower. And I think that's the important thing. They provide a equal standard of education to a lot of the larger state schools but they have this extra experience that comes with it. That's an interesting take, sir. Uh, you know, I mean, I I just, uh, I feel like you did it best. Being being that you had both in experiences, you got to see the best of both worlds. And that it is a, a distinct difference between going to a, a majority institution than an HBCU. Um, so I have not done any any uh, undergraduate or graduate uh, study at a well. I've I've done programs through well Middlebury when I studied in a language school at Middlebury, uh, but it was similar in that it was a it was a small school, um, but it was considered a majority institution, and uh, it is a different environment. And I think that it helps. You know, one of the things that I love about the HBCU is that I made some of the best friends that I've had in my life. Uh, people who were who were like-minded, working towards, you know, a goal, looking to become professionals. And it was great to be able to be in an environment where, like you said, you see people that look like you, grew up in environments like you, understand what it means to struggle like you, and y'all are all going for the same collective goal. And it definitely forges strong relationships that I think will endure for time to come. I mean, Daryl, I'm sure you have friends that you met in college that are like best friends. Um, I do. That you'll have for the rest of your life. That's true. That's true. And my, my experience was quite unique in that I went to an HBCU that was literally only 15 minutes down the road from a majority school. You know, I went to Tuskegee University, but 15 minutes down the road was Auburn University. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I actually left Tuskegee and went to Auburn, that was a culture shock, if you will, Mm -hmm. just to see, just to see the amount of exposure that these kids had to certain resources that we just did not have it, Tuskegee. It was amazing, you know, but I think Tuskegee nurtured us in, so, in such a way that it provided us the foundation to thrive once we left that environment in the larger environments. And 
like I said, initially it was a culture shock. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think that what we got at Tuskegee was, as you said, immeasurable. And it allowed us to to thrive in that situation. And it allowed us to not only sustain in that situation, but to achieve far beyond what society said we would have had we just come straight into that environment. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was a, it was a welcome experience. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a welcome experience. I will say, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, that you just kind of touched on a point or that I'm, I'm going to run with is that, you know, I've heard time and time again, um, former students of HBCUs, people that I, I, I know, etc. Once they go past the undergraduate level to the graduate level, oftentimes they excel. Uh, and I don't and, and I've always wondered why that was the case. Um what was it that, that about our character, about who we are, that that made us want to thrive so much in that environment? I mean, but it's it's uncanny. It's it's to a point where there's it's it's more than just a correlation, in my opinion. Like it's a definite product of being in the schools that we come from, then being given an opportunity to study postgraduate studies at a majority institution. And I don't know if it's just a hunger that we we're, we have to succeed that we know what it feels like and we go for it. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that I see, I think it was Otis, uh, was it Otis Moss the third, Chris? Yeah. Otis Moss the third. And we spoke when he spoke to us our freshman year at, Mor- at Morehouse. And he talked about how he barely scored an 800 on his SAT and couldn't, and really couldn't read getting into college. That Morehouse gave him an opportunity that most other schools wouldn't. Period. And he went from being a person that struggled to read, whereas at most majority institutions, a child like that is going to be overlooked. You're just going to fail your classes and you're not going to have an opportunity to thrive. But someone saw potential in him and invested in it. And now he's in a place in his life where he's lecturing all over the country you know he's he's now a doctor if i'm correct yes. uh i don't know what he he garnered his doctorate in but you know he credits morehouse with giving him an opportunity to change his life and you see that story time and time again at hbcus i'm not saying that that does not exist in majority institutions but i do feel like it it like we we talked about already just the fact that you have an opportunity to be nurtured in an environment where you don't feel like you're alone, where you're not the token, when you're not by yourself, uh, I think is a is a beautiful thing. And it's, it's the reason why I feel like HBCUs should exist for generations to come, because it's a great option for someone who's looking for that experience. Well, we talk about we talked about two things, and that's the standard of education at HBCUs not being inferior to those of majority institutions. But then, Daryl, you mentioned maybe not having a lot of the resources in terms of the the actual campus resources. And, like, for me in science, maybe a lot of the equipment and things of that nature that are at majority institutions. But the reason that the standard of education is similar is because they focus on basic concepts. 
So right. a lot of times what I feel like, and especially having gone to a an Ivy League institution for my graduate studies, is that when you have a lot of resources there, it sometimes clouds the vision of those students. They don't tend to get the basic concepts that govern everything that they do. And they focus on those advanced things without having a thorough understanding of basic things. And HBCUs, because they don't necessarily have the resources to have a lot of advanced machinery, a lot of advanced techniques and things of that nature on campus, they have to focus on being solidly fundamental. And so you have the professors who may do research, but they are very focused on the upbringing of the student body. They're focused on teaching, they're focused on professional development, and they're focused on the well-being of the students. And I think that goes a long way into providing the tools for success once someone leaves that environment. And so you're right, AJ, a lot of people who do leave HBCUs who were successful there end up being very successful in majority environments because not only do they have the technical skills that they need, but they have a very solid foundation upon which to build. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, it it even speaks to, uh, you know, I know people who weren't necessarily by the numbers the most successful students in college at HBCUs. You know, they might have graduated with a 2.8 from undergrad, but were able to get into a majority institution for their graduate studies and end up being in the top of their class. So, you know, it's something about about the the nature of being in an HBCU that just it, people thrive. Like, I, I, like I said, I, I don't know, I don't know quite how to put a name on it. It's a hunger. It's something. Uh, it's almost like you you feel like the need to prove to yourself that you can do it. And time and time again, people do. And I think that's, I think one of the things is, honestly, if you think about it, you're away from home. You have Mm -hmm. people that look like you, you have this community feel, and there's a certain amount of bonding that takes place when you're at an HBCU. So you get those fundamental, cohesive moments together where you're doing assignments together. You're you're building those those relationships. But at majority institutions, that doesn't happen. You have departments, you have I don't know, you might have a collective body that focuses on minority support at these at these majority institutions, but at an HBCU, that's all you have. You're surrounded by it. You're submersed in it. At a majority institution, you're small in number. So it's it's not like the larger picture is focused on you and yours, whereas at an HBCU, everything is about you and yours. Yeah, I think yeah. when you even look at the social context uh, beyond just the academics at HBCU, I think, and especially, you know, you can speak to this, AJ, at Morehouse, it was almost like a fraternity of sorts where yeah, right. they kind of indoctrinated us into the Morehouse way. And, you know, at the time you kind of think about it, and you're like, man, 
I want to be a free thinker. I don't want to really think along this path that they really set forward for me. But you begin to realize over time what they're trying to instill within you. And as you look at your classmates, as they've advanced in their careers, they've gone and gotten advanced degrees and they're in the workforce now, we can sit and have very intelligent conversations and we can talk about things that are very pertinent to to strengthening the black community because we were we were exposed to that when we were in school. That's what all of our training was going towards for us to strengthen. You're literally part of the black community. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a, that's an unspoken fact, in fact, that, that most HBCUs are in the middle of black communities. And so it allows you ample opportunity to do community service in those communities and really get to know what it takes to try to strengthen the black community and the black influence. But have you ever thought about why they're, they seem to all be in the heart of impoverished neighborhoods? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, definitely have. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you can't help it. And I know that I, I can't help it in my experience, you know, especially when you're, you're in undergrad, if you're going through something, if you're just, dis, dis, you know, upset about something in your undergrad experience, you start to look for the differences, you know, what would it have been like if I would have been here instead of at this school, you know, right now I'm pissed about this. So, you know, is life better or is life greener on the other side? And, you know, you do start to look at the differences and you wonder why. You know, you look at the Harvards, the Stanfords, the UPens, et cetera, Duke, you know, all of these other majority. And, and in Atlanta, you know, there's Emory, Georgia Tech, Georgia State right across town. Um, mm-hmm. And these these majority institutions that have these beautiful campuses and these beautiful facilities. And it just it's like. And they're they're surrounded like Emory for anyone who's who's listening, who doesn't know in Emory, uh, Emory University in Atlanta is a very very large university extremely well funded uh and the surrounding area is gorgeous the people who live in that area it's a gorgeous area it's unbelievable um morehouse is plop dead center in the hood period there's no other other way to explain it it's an impoverished area it's rough you know there are times like you you walk around you want to make sure that you're with friends when you're walking outside the walls of the school because uh, you don't want to get caught by yourself. And, you know, I really, I, I've thought about why, you know, because in some ways it feels unfair. It's like, well, I wanted to have that same feeling that kids at Emory have where they can walk around without being afraid of what's going to happen. Or they can see, just psychologically, seeing beautiful things while you're working on yourself. Like, it was rough for me. There were times where I really hated the fact that our campus didn't look like other campuses that I felt were were not producing any better talent. But we didn't have that. Yeah, I, well, actually, I have the answer for you. The answer dons back to the origins of these HBCUs. Think about our how we were kept from those institutions of higher learning. So mm-hmm. that goes all the way back to the foundations of the HBCUs. They were placed in those areas because those were the people that they were trying to lift out of those areas. But the reality of the of the matter is 
the cost of education has risen so much that the very people they're trying to lift out of those areas cannot afford to go to the schools. That's why you have people coming from far and wide that are funding these schools, but the very people that they're trying to take, that are trying to rise above those areas, they can't, they can't afford to, to attain the education from those institutions. So it's almost like it was a good plan in the beginning, but where have we gone you know where where have we gone since then? It's a good point. I, when you talk, when you think about Morehouse in particular, there's mm-hmm. the Morehouse Scholars, and mm-hmm. for each very, it's mostly large chapters of the Morehouse College Alumni Association. They sponsor mm-hmm. a student who is a local student to mm-hmm. matriculate at Morehouse, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a need based thing. So they take people who may be first-generation college students or who just really do not have the financial wherewithal to be able to attend a private institution, and they help them through school. And so, you know, you only have one such of these scholarships that's offered. Right. And there are many people who are deserving of being able to go there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a noble cause, right? But... Mm-hmm. Are you reaching all of those that really need to be reached? Because nice. it, you think about the big state institutions, you get reduced tuition if you're if you're a resident of that state. But this experience that you should be able to get at an HBCU just isn't there. Yeah. And so you wonder if the people who need it most are not necessarily the ones who are on those campuses. They're the ones who ended up having to go to a large state institution because of their financial restraints. I'll give you an example from Tuskegee University. If you were to poll 100 students, I guarantee you out of that 100 students, maybe one would be from Tuskegee. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's astounding. You would think this university, this major HBCU, is in your backyard. Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you focused on going to this school? Well, the the obvious reason is they can't afford it. These most of these schools are privately funded, yeah, which means high tuition. Yeah, so they can't afford to go there. Yeah, I mean, that was honestly, that was one of my major issues with Morehouse and and HBCUs in general. Like you said, most of them are privately funded institutions, which means that their tuition, like they have to, to run the schools and they get it from the students. Uh, but that has to change. There has to, I mean, it's becoming, you know, there it's soul crushing debt that the majority of students leave Morehouse, Howard, you know, FAMU, Tuskegee, you know, the list goes on and on. But most of the people that I know who leave black institutions have a, a substantial amount of debt that they've incurred. I mean, I read a, I read an article that talked about uh, schools with the highest amount of federal financial aid. 
And Morehouse is in the top five, last I checked. And they were sitting at like 97% of the student body was on some sort of financial aid through the federal government. And, you know, I've, I've, that number is extreme. It's way too high. You know, you shouldn't like parents taking out second mortgages on their home so that their kid can get an education. You know, and that's and that's not an unusual story. You hear it all the time. I mean, you literally parents can't afford to come to the graduation to see their kid walk across that stage because they've put everything they had into helping their child get an education. The day refund checks came back was a holiday for people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh <my> <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like the day refund checks came back, people were like, I can afford to eat now. This is amazing. You know, if not at Linux, spending money that they shouldn't be spending. Like, oh, you forgot you were just broke last week, man. Calm that down. It's got to rest you. It's got to last you to the rest of the semester. But that's crazy. Like you literally, I couldn't make it half a day without knowing that the checks had reached the office because everybody would know. Like, yo, did you get your check yet? Nope, I haven't. About to go right after this class. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and it was amazing. Like. The difference in just how the town responded to the university. Okay, at Auburn, everything was centered around the Auburn University student. Everything. I mean, you could use your Tiger card, your little identification card, to pay for things at the shoe store and the mall and McDonald's. So it's not like... If you didn't have any money, you were just out of luck. At Tuskegee, if you miss the calf at a certain time, uh, guess what? And you didn't have any money, you were hungry. But, I mean, Auburn was the total experience, totally centered around the student. And I don't know how it was at Morehouse, but the locals in Tuskegee did not like Tuskegee University students. And I think that that comes from that perception that we talked about earlier. Okay, well, you're not even from here. Why are you so special that you can obtain an education at the institution that's in my backyard? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, no, like, I agree with you. Uh, It was very similar in your experience. Uh, When I was in Morehouse, and you know what? I mean, I literally grew up around the corner from school from Morehouse. I mean, this is my neighborhood. This is where I grew up. And I was well aware of it as a kid that people in the neighborhood didn't like students that were in the AUC. We're seen as being uppity. We look at ourselves as being better than the community that's around us, which is not the case. Like if you were actually on the campus, you realize that most of these people came from those same communities. They were just trying to find a way out. But within our community, within the black community, I feel like there exists an issue where when someone is trying to better themselves, trying to do something outside of the norm or what they see in their neighborhood, that people hold them back or down them rather than pushing them forward and propelling them. Um, And and it's my understanding that 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 wasn't the case a generation or two ago. And it's sad to me to see that that's the direction that we're headed in, where you know, the whole goal was for us to become successful. So why is it that when people are are trying to excel, they're looked at as doing something wrong or being 
fake or or better yet being called white for right. trying to get an education you know i i feel like that was always one of the most ignorant things that was said about me and one of the things that drove me nuts as a as a kid because i i valued my education and was trying to do something for myself that i was looked down upon by some of my friends who didn't have that same opportunity and you know the reality is is once we have those opportunities we're re- we're able to reach back and help others who didn't and if we all saw it that way we would get much further as a as a as a community that's true i, I think most times though most people's perception is that once that person reaches a certain level or obtains a certain goal, then they won't reach back. So there becomes this crabs in a barrel mentality. They -hmm. get to the top, and then everyone wants to pull them down. Well, (laughs) if you're pulling everybody down when they get to the top, no one will ever reach the top. So it's, 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 it's a big cycle that needs to stop if we're going to excel and be more of a powerful unit within this country. You know, it's, it's sad to, to hear that as of right now, we have more buying power than any other culture in this country but how do we utilize it outside of our communities you know we don't utilize it in a way that builds our community we take all of our money outside of our communities and as it stands now we're losing our power stake right now we have less of a stake in how this country is guided than the Hispanic community. And that's sad. It really is. You know, I think being at these institutions and being at a place where we are, frankly, surrounded by people of color and we're inundated with images of successful people of color, we still fall victim to a lot of the things that have controlled blacks in the past. And when you think about previous generations, what they did was they went to school and they wanted to get a job. That was the ultimate goal. Let's get a job. Let's earn a living. Let's have a family and let's be able to earn for that family. But as we're progressing and as we're getting these refined educations, we have to break away from that mindset and think about how can we begin to own things, take ownership of things. And and that was one thing that I think was tried to be stressed at Morehouse, but there were a fair number of people who didn't necessarily get it. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily just owning your own business because a lot of people can see that as being daunting, but it's really just owning, taking ownership of your ideas, not letting people, not letting people stomp over you. Like, especially like for me and being in science and, you know, being in medicine, we discover things and obviously if you're doing stuff at a university that's university property and you have to go through patenting and all of that stuff but being able to take an idea and to say hey this is something that can better society i need to take ownership of this and see it through 
that's just not a concept that's very common among young black kids. And it's sad that the HBCU experience is built to kind of to foster that type of thinking, but it surpasses a lot of people who actually pass through these institutions. And so you get this repeating cycle over the years where people are just trying to get out there, get a job, get money and support their families. But let's think outside the box. You have people who are who are the majority race who will throw everything they have into an idea. And they don't care. Even if they aren't successful, they feel solace in the fact that they gave it all they had. So why can't we do that? We have the same resources. We have the same ability. There's definitely no shortage of innovation on HBCU campuses. In some ways, I feel like we have to become a little bit more ingenious in our everyday lives on campus. And I think you guys understand that. But yeah, like you said, if we take ownership of the things that we, we create, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in, in you have to have a business mindset. Um, you have to be like, really, honestly, the only way to get ahead these days is to go into business for yourself, to, to be an entrepreneur and not to necessarily work for someone else. Um, raises like, you know, wages aren't going up, but the cost of living is wages are not going up anywhere near as fast as the cost of living. And, you know, there are issues with the middle class literally being eradicated. You know, it was a value. It was a valued step to go get an education, get a job and to support your family 50 years ago. And it's still there's still like I still will respect any man or woman that does that. It's it's a beautiful thing to, to go out, work every day, put put your heart and soul into to making sure that you can take care of yours. But. That's it's getting to a point where that's no longer a, vi- a viable option. That, you know, it sucks. But if you if you take that route, you know, like we talked about, the cost of the tuition at these schools is going up so quickly that, you know, it's a legitimate concern as to whether or not you or I or Daryl will be able to afford to send our kids to these same institutions that we went to. You know, uh, and I think that that's an issue. Like they're definitely like, like you said, uh, going into business for yourself, taking ownership of an idea, thought of something that you have you know, come up with, you know, your own innovation, what it is that you want to bring to the world. What is your contribution? Take ownership of that and run with it. You know, nobody deserves to make more for your ideas than you. Most HBCUs are have been fundamentally designed to breed good employees rather than pushing entrepreneurship and rather than pushing people to build on their ideas, to create wealth to funnel back into the communities, to build our communities, to strengthen them to so that we have a stronger stake in what goes on in this country. And we're not just bystanders anymore. We're not just people sitting on the sidelines watching things happen. We're actually making things happen, making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think this this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the the cost of tuition being so high that students most students are taking out loans in order to be able to fund their their education at these institutions? Do you think that has anything to do with why people go straight into jobs? 
because you hear people talk about it. They're like, look, I'm getting ready to start this career. Got a good job. I need to start paying Sally Mae back like ASAP. You know, Sally Mae is all in my pockets. I'm going to go ahead and keep this good salary uh, because I need to be able to pay this off. And it scares people away from taking the leap of faith necessary to go out and do your own thing. Not to mention, you might not have the funding to get it off the ground. And you're already scared of having and owing a certain amount of money that you don't want to take out another loan and put yourself that much further behind. If it fails, you've now created an even larger hole for yourself. Do you think that that has anything to do with why some of the students coming out of black institutions aren't going into owning their own ideas and or businesses and, you know, et cetera? Yeah, I think that does have quite a bit to do with it. And you even look at recent examples. When you look at the new budget that's been passed, there is now a cap on the amount of loan forgiveness that can be given for any individual student. And it's affected people who have gone into careers and who have expected maybe that if they go into a lower paying job, but that's in a public service sector, that they will be forgiven of their loans. That mm -hmm. seems to be a, a lot of the strategy of people, and especially just from my personal experience, people who go into medicine. You've seen a lot of medical students decide that they'll go into the less, uh, the less glamorous subspecialties in order to get those loans forgiven. So a lot of people will go into general medicine, and even though they aren't going to make as much money, they can go into the public health service and they can get their loans forgiven. But now you have a situation where that's not happening. So now they're going to make the decision to go into the very lucrative subspecialties, mm -hmm. leaving those other subspecialties to people who may not be as passionate or who, who may not even be as capable of doing a great job. People are going to be underserved. Absolutely. And I, I think you see that not only in medicine, but in various other fields mm -hmm. where people are just worried about being able to pay back Sally Mae, to be able to pay back Fed loan and whoever holds those loans. Teachers. Absolutely. Teachers. That's uh, a huge one. Teachers. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Uh, you know, and I love anybody who, anyone who makes it their life's mission to teach children or anyone for that matter, uh, you have my respect. Teachers aren't getting paid anywhere near enough money in this country. And the reality is, is that the quality of the education that our students get would increase exponentially overnight if you somehow had a magic wand and were able to double this teacher's salary in this country. You know how many intelligent, astute people I know who really genuinely want to teach, want to mold young minds, but they cannot afford it. They can't. They just don't understand or know a way to live comfortably or even live uncomfortably on a teacher's salary. Right. So you're losing some of the the best and brightest minds in this country are not going into that profession and are not recycling that knowledge back to younger generations. And we wonder why our scores keep going down year after year after year after year in comparison to other countries. So this begs the question, should there be some type of formal education at HBCUs to teach how to build capital, because ultimately that that is the root of this problem. We don't know how to effectively build capital so that we can take the plunge, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. We have, you know, you have things such as crowdfunding and you can go to venture capitalists if you have a really good idea and get someone to believe in your idea and invest in that. And I think that's one thing that is missing from the HBCU experience. They teach you technically how to do very cool things. But how do you translate that into something that is commercializable? How do you translate it into something that will end up ultimately giving you a successful outlook in the business arena. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really do think it would be very useful for people to come in and say, hey, how do you build capital? How do you network? How do you get people to believe in your idea and give you lots of money for it? All right, Professor, sounds like you're going to be the one that goes back and uh, builds that course at Morehouse, man. <laughs> hey, it's I'm, already going on. Entrepreneurship 101. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, but that's a beautiful thing. I mean, and, and, and you are right. You hit the nail in the head with that one. And that I think a lot of majority institutions, like anybody who really has an idea, who wants to do something that they, that's already kind of innate in them. They see it, they see the networking happen. They see the capital happen. Not to mention that people coming from majority environments, you know, oftentimes come from areas where they grew up understanding that concept that I don't necessarily have to fund this on my own. There are other people with more money than me who are willing to put in some money for a little return to make my dream happen. Right. And they, they, they know that they can, some of them can even pick up the phone and call those people one-on-one. They know where to look for them. And that's not something that a lot of kids at HBCUs understand or have access to. So teaching that skill would be invaluable. Exactly. And, and it goes back to the resources. Like I said before, the connections that, that, the majority schools have. If you think about the connections that HBCUs have as opposed to the connections that are reachable at majority institutions, it pales in comparison. I mean, when you think about, like, the newly tapped CEO of Apple, he's an Auburn alumni. I don't know anyone of that stature from Tuskegee. Now, we do have CEOs and presidents of companies and corporations, but no one of that stature. So then you start realizing, okay, now Auburn has a collective where they're having interns come into the Apple system because of that connection. It's astounding. So what do we have to do to get to that level from an HBC standpoint? You know, an interesting question that was brought up while I was at Morehouse, and I haven't really, we've actually revisited the question with a lot of people from Morehouse who live around me, and that's, is there a certain stratification among the HBCUs? Like, is there a realistic difference between going to a Howard or a Morehouse or Hampton, Tuskegee or, you know, Tennessee State, NCA and T than going to somewhere like Prairie View or Morgan State or something like that? Is there a real difference, a real tangible difference? Hmm. (laughs) That is an interesting question. I would think that depending on which school you're talking about, there may not be a difference because a lot of these schools are spawned from other schools. 
Like Tuskegee and Hampton are like sister institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, before Booker T. Washington founded Tuskegee, he was a student at Hampton. So that gave a rise to that whole relationship between Tuskegee and Hampton. Now, as far as the other institutions, I'm not really sure because I don't really have experience with those other institutions with the exception of my travels, you know, going there through fraternity meetings and things of that nature, but I'm not really sure. That's an interesting question that that deserves research. Well, I think the nexus of that question was that can we realistically reach a higher plane as HBCUs if we're not reaching back to those who may not have the same academic standards as the high performers and bringing them up? Mm-hmm. So are we simply elevating the profile of Morehouse or are we elevating the profile of HBCUs in general? Which is important because if you don't elevate the profile of HBCUs in general, Morehouse will no longer have a home or a purpose years from now. Uh, it, or, or any other HBCU for that matter. You know, If people don't realize that there is a definite need for these universities, for these colleges, then... It, w- it would be no reason for them to exist, you know? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and I think that's just, that's something that, you, will, you Chris, you and I both have this in us. We both have the earnest to want to reach back and help other people in our community excel in ways that they didn't know were possible. You know, I, I can't see myself being successful without helping somebody else get there. I just can't. Like I, I see no purpose in having a successful life or it's not a successful life if I don't help other people find. It's part of the reason why I'm personal trained. You know, I lost 120 pounds and my life changed forever. It's uh, the, the best decision I ever made was to, to allow my health and wellness to become a priority in my life. And I've decided to spend the rest of my life as a personal trainer and in other ways within the fitness industry to help other people enjoy that same quality of life. I feel like that whole journey I went through would be useless if I didn't help someone else find that path. Um, and I, I agree with you, you know, as like, yeah, there are certain HBCUs that people look in, in with a certain esteem. Morehouse being one of them, Howard, you know, Spellman right across the street. Uh, and it was it was unfortunate. You know, people I, I know firsthand people look at Morehouse differently than they look at Clark Atlanta University, which is right next door. Um, and it bugged me. It really did. We literally are next door to each other. There shouldn't be a competition. <laughs> we share classes, really. I mean, we sh- like... exactly, <laughs> exactly. There shouldn't be a competition, but there is. And I never understood that mentality. Okay, well, <laughs> I think that that just brought up an interesting, interesting conversation. Since we're talking about the AU Center, why is there so much hesitance to to deal with the issues at Morris Brown, considering that that is a part of the AU Center? What mm-hmm. what's going on? Mm. Why why haven't the other institutions surrounding that institution helped it I, out? What what is I, going I on? I agree with you wholeheartedly, but uh. And I, and I can't speak on it because I don't know 
enough of the details to to make a statement and feel like I can back that statement up 100%. I, I really can't. I do know that the school is, like, Morris Brown is coming back from the dead, you know, essentially for all intents and purposes that's that college was gone and it was heart it was disheartening my grandfather graduated from morris brown and i have a very a family history that that is it was important to me i honestly can't tell you why or how much if any morehouse and clark and spellman have been you know itc that's right there uh have reached back to help morris brown i can't i honestly can't give you a good answer on that one well, AJ, you know, we were on campus at Morehouse right when the whole Morris Brown thing happened. Yeah. And I think the more outward show of support from the other AUC schools was welcoming in the students that were that wanted to leave Morris Brown because of mm-hmm. the loss of the accreditation. Yeah. But we didn't necessarily see a lot of the behind the things that may have been the behind the scenes things that may have been going on. Yeah. And we saw that that outward showing of, of welcoming in those students was there. Mm-hmm. But I'm, yeah. I know a lot of us at the time felt like it was almost in a way taking advantage of the student body of Morris Brown. Mm-hmm. And an example that I have is when I was in the marching the marching band at Morehouse. Oh, yeah. Obviously, the marching band at Morris Brown was much, much better. Yep. And when we heard that students were going to transfer from Morris Brown, we actively recruited the top, the top instrumentalists in their band to try to elevate the profile <laughs> of the Morehouse Marching Band. Yeah. So you have these selfish interests that are there when you know <laughs> you have this common thread. You're, you're historically black colleges and universities in the same center, a a a center, a mecca of learning in the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yet you have these petty, selfish things that you're trying to pursue because of the unfortunate circumstances that surrounded another school's demise. I agree with you. Uh, you know, and and I hope you guys will uh, forgive me for a second, but I wanted to reach back into the conversation and go back to something that we already spoke on. Because uh, I felt like it was it's something that needs some clarification for our audience. When we were talking about how much the resources that are available to students at HBCUs as opposed to majority institutions. Um, and let's keep it with private institutions. You know, public 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 schools are, are publicly funded by the state, by the government. And what they're able to do is different from what a private institution can do across the board. Uh, but you look at a, a place like Morehouse. Like, I can speak from my own perspective, from my own experience. Morehouse is in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've already spoke about Emory University, which is right around the corner, right? Right down the street, same city, you know. But to put numbers to it, Emory has an endowment of over $6 billion, last I checked. Morehouse just reached $130 million in the endowment in recent years. That gives you an idea of the type of money that Emory has to build new facilities to provide the best equipment for their students to provide the best instructors for their students the best professors they can afford them to come and teach at emory the research that's being done at that school what they're able to do as opposed to morehouse and how do we as hbcus get to a place where we can build endowments of that size AJ, you brought up a good point that the research being done there 
at Emory is just much higher caliber than the research being done at Morehouse, and it's because of the resources that are there. So it's it's kind of like a never-ending cycle, right? Mm-hmm. If you graduate people from Morehouse who are successful enough to be able to go to very good schools, get very good educations, are they going to want to come back and teach at Morehouse if they can't have the ability to further their careers? So like if they mean, weren't independently wealthy already coming into that. Exactly. Most won't. Or, or... It goes back to what we said before. When they go off to these other graduate programs and they go off and start to work and build wealth, are they giving back to the schools? That's that alumni support. I would submit that by far and large, you have less financial support from the alumni at HBCUs than you do at majority institutions. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yep. And, and it might Why be... Why is that? Well, it might be a function of the, the strategy for fundraising because I, I can tell you, I can definitely tell you, the experience that you know I and my friends have had in terms of being alumni um, from Morehouse versus even Georgia Tech, mm-hmm. it was like... There hasn't been that hard of a push from Morehouse to to enable me to give back. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you, three months after I graduated from Georgia Tech, I was getting people calling me every day. Hey, you want to get five dollars? Exactly. You want to get twenty dollars? You want to get thirty dollars? And exactly. to this day, it's been any donation can count. Once you leave the doors exactly. of that institution, they get on you. They get on yeah. you and they get on you some more. I agree with you. Like Chris, uh, my high school actually does more fundraising or I see more more notices from them more things in the mail get more phone calls emails from them than I do from Morehouse and they're keeping you abreast to what's going on what is new what are we doing how we how are we using these funds I don't get that from Tuskegee yeah Yeah, that's another thing that I, I, I really I love that point that you just made Daryl where is our money going? You know, that's important. If you want people to give, let us know where the money is going. We don't want to feel like we're giving to the church building fund and nothing's ever been built on this church. <laughs> like, we've had the same church building fund for the last 40 years. How come the church hadn't been built yet? <laughs> What's going on? All right. Like, we, we've been given to the same university for the last 30 years. And it seems pretty much the same as when I graduated 30 years ago. Where is this money going to? And that's important. That is important. You need to let people know where their money is going to. It's, and you know what? I feel I have similar views on, on taxes. I feel like a lot of people would not mind paying taxes if they knew exactly how the money was being allocated in the government. You know, most of us just feel like we're giving money away. Like, y'all aren't going to use this for the public good anyway. So uh, what am I giving it to you for? You know, but... But if, you know, people didn't have to pay for health care, if people didn't have to pay to get an education, if people didn't have to pay for all of these other things in their lives because the money that they were paying taxes in was actually being used for public good and we could see it every day, you're inundated with all of these things that are being, your money's being used for, you'd feel like, okay, I, I, I like giving <laughs> to this institution. It's the same thing. Like if you knew 
I helped build this center at Morehouse with the, I don't care if it's the $5 that you sent or the $5 million you sent, it's going to make you feel more like giving back. Right. People just want to be a part of a bigger thing. Like, I want to be a part of something grand and large. Right. Let me know that this money is being used to help these kids who are coming up behind me. And I'm in. Well, the thing is, if you get people started early, then you develop a pattern. So if, if someone's coming out of college and they give $20 within two months of graduating, uh-huh. down the line, they're going to continue to give. And hey, once look. they become affluent, they get some money, they're going to think, where am I going to donate this money? Who am I going to donate to? Oh, yeah, I've been donating to my alma mater all this time. I might as well just throw this money at them. Yeah, it's like, look, hey, when I first get out of college and like he said, I'm paying back these loans. I'm not making that much. Look, my 1% of my income that I can give you is is hurting me to do it, but I'm doing it because I want to give back to somebody who's behind me who needs who needs it. Like, I know the, the struggles that I went through. I know some of the things that I felt like were missing. I can help someone. Like, that 1%, when you first get out of college, it's not that much money. But like you said, as people start to, to go out, I mean, we have some friends who are uber successful, who are making a lot of money. That 1% two years after college might not be a big deal right then. But like you said, getting in the habit of doing it. Next thing you know, you have somebody who's making $100 million a year. That 1% is now $1 million. That's not insignificant. <laughs> so, you know, it's just about making it, like you said, making it happen, making it a pattern now. So that when I get to a place where I've become affluent, that I've become successful, I'm already in the habit of giving back. Absolutely. So so with that being said, do you think that HBCUs are losing their prominence as far as attracting young, talented, smart individuals to those institutions as opposed to the majority institutions? Well, I think there's a twofold answer to that one in that the the first answer is that, well, yes, on both fronts. But the first reason, um, rather, is that the majority institutions are starting to realize that diversity is key and that in order for them to get funding from federal organizations, in order for them to get funding just from charitable organizations, they need to have diversity. And so this push for diversity is causing them to offer scholarships to the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. And they aren't necessarily going to the HBCUs because the scholarships maybe aren't there. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to mm-hmm. do as a, as a, as a fresh faced kid coming out of high school and a school that's very prominent in the top 50 of the U S news and world report rankings offers you either a full scholarship or nearly a full scholarship. What are you going to do? Are you going to go there or are you going to go to Morehouse where you may or may not get a scholarship? And yeah. Because it's a noble thing to do. Exactly. But reality is my family can't afford to send me to this school and I have an opportunity to go to this other university. It might not be the same experience 
that I would get if I went to Morehouse. But you know what? I can visit my friends at Morehouse on spring break. <laughs> well, AJ- and that's a decision that people make all the time. I, I'm going to be honest. Had my father not gone to Morehouse, had my grandmother not been at Spelman, had my sister not gone to Spelman, my grandfather gone to Morris Brown, if I didn't have that tie to the AUC, that is my family, would have never ended up at Morehouse. I, I am 100% positive that Morehouse would not have been on my radar if it wasn't for the fact that I had a physical tie to the school. Right. Well, AJ, I'm glad you said that because that alludes to the second reason that I was going to discuss. And that's the fact that I feel as if HBCUs are losing their prominence in the minds of the black community. Not necessarily it's with it being a true thing and it's not actually tangible. But if you look at the minds of the younger black generations, I mm-hmm. don't think that the HBCUs have maintained the prominence that they have with the previous generations. Well, I mean, the, the, and that issue, you're, you're right. And that issue is twofold. For one, 50, 60 years ago, an HBCU may have been the only option for the cream of the crop, black men and women, you know, especially 100 years ago, right? Now, because we're having this skimming, you know, the best of the best going to majority institutions, right? You're losing some of your, like, you're you're losing some of your best students. You're losing the cream of the crop. So you are, in some ways, regressing with the talent that you have coming out of HBCUs because all it's like trying to play against the, the New York Yankees. You know, you've got this this team that is full of talent because they're paying everybody to come to play for them. And you have a team like every once in a while, you might have a money ball team coming out of nowhere where somebody who's not making anything finds a way to be successful. But the reality is, is the schools with more money to give are going to get the best talent. That's it. It's not a secret. So how do HBCUs combat that problem? It's, the, the, you know what? If I can come up with an answer to that, I promise you I'll be a wealthy man. <laughs> I promise <laughs> you that. And I'm going to share it with the world. I'm not going to be stingy with that that knowledge. Because um, the reality is, is you, you are losing. I mean, Morehouse, I believe, is close to $40,000 a year now. Student, you know, tuition, room, board fees. Etc. Uh, you have the opportunity to go. Let's say you're you're a kid in Atlanta, Georgia. You're you grew up here. You have the opportunity to go to a Georgia State or an Emory or Georgia Tech here in the city of Atlanta or Morehouse. Say Georgia State is offering you full tuition, giving you a full ride, and Morehouse just doesn't have the money to do it. You're looking at the opportunity to go to school for free or pay $40,000 over the next four years. That's $160,000 versus nothing. Which decision do you make? (laughs) And you're talking to a lot of these kids who didn't grow up with money. Their parents can't cut a check. It's not a a difficult situation or, or decision for a lot of kids who are going to, you know, these... Uh, majority institutions that are prominent if their parents have the money to say all right day one i'm cutting the check you can go to harvard it doesn't matter if you get any money because we can afford it 
Well, that is not the case for the majority of students at HBCUs. True. So, gentlemen, I would be remiss if I didn't tell our listeners that what we the sentiments that we expressed at the beginning of this topic are still true to this day. That HBCUs are the best place for you to get the black experience as a college student. But they're not without their problems. There there are issues in administration as there are at other majority institutions. There are issues with the reach back. There are issues with alumni support. Uh, there are issues with the perception in society. However, I think it's up to us as as people who have attended these schools to figure out ways to be able to combat these things. And I think we've touched on a lot of the things where it's alumni support. It's it's enhancing their perception of the schools in the community. It's the schools working together to elevate the image of the HBCU in general. And it's also the schools working within the communities to elevate the perception of the students of the school within the community. So I think you combine all of those things and and you have you begin to have the foundation for the HBCUs to elevate their profile, but it can't be done all internally. And so there are a number of programs that are sponsored by the federal government that are specifically geared towards especially HBCUs that have active research or active even medical schools near their campus, giving them funding to be able to start up, giving them funding to be able to develop these high class and state of the art facilities to be able to do world class research and and recruit world class researchers. But I, I do feel that there is sort of a pushback here from the community because there's now a limited pot of money from which to draw but then also from those people who are even qualified to do the work because what's going to happen if you're going to get a lot of money in an hbcu let's say a medical center like howard or like morehouse school of medicine you're going to give them a large pot of money to devote to a center you have to recruit people to run that center how many of those people that you recruit are going to be black? It's a real question. <laughs> so you kind of see the issue here where you have all these competing forces where, yeah, we can do all we want to, to invest into the community and invest into the elevation of the profile of HBCUs. But if we just don't get that support from the outside, it's just not really going to match up unless we become completely self-sufficient. So, Chris, I mean, do you do you believe that 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 possibility exist for the future oh i think it can happen that's not to say that it can't happen it's just it's going to require a lot of us who who end up coming out of these environments and and going to get really good educations to come back and and really support the initiatives that are out there and mm -hmm. you know i've always said like a perfect landing spot for me would be morehouse school of medicine and i would not mind coming back I would not mind reaching out to the Morehouse College and the Spelman and everybody in the AUC to try to get them to go and develop something, develop some cure or develop some medical device or, or something like that and just give back, even if they don't have to come back and become a professor. But yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it, it's going to take people with that mindset, although there are competing forces as you go along the way. And you kind of see this when you leave HBCUs. There are a lot of people of color 
who are pushing you to become the best you can be. And what that often means, especially in the academic environment, is they want you to become professors at a Columbia, professors at Yale, professors at Harvard, Stanford, MIT, schools of that ilk. But that's not going to do anything to really elevate the profile of the institutions that are training minorities in the fields. And so there's this constant push on both sides for you to kind of go back to your roots, but then for you to make strides in uncharted water, so to speak. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, it's a really like I this this question, this this conundrum comes up all the time, you know, and, and every HBCU struggles with it. How do we get the best of the brightest to come here? I just, like, I really just, I, like I said, if I come up with that answer, I'll make sure you guys get a cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know the easy answer. The easy answer is funding. Yeah, <laughs> that's the but, easiest answer. <laughs> the hard part is how do you get the funding? How, yeah. Yeah. how do we make the money? Look. Maybe maybe we need to. Uh, each student should be required to spend a dollar on a lottery ticket when they come in, <laughs> and all lottery proceeds go to the school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so Daryl, I, I wanted to ask you. I know we've been talking really seriously here, but just to get some fun out. I mean, the HBCU environment often is a time where, like, the social scene is probably the best you'll see anywhere. So, right. can you remember any specific instances where, you know, just like crazy things were happening on campus? And it's something that's unique to being at an HBCU. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I was talking about fraternal travels, I was speaking in regards to the fraternity that I'm a part of. And being at an HBCU, you're already in a small village type of environment. So it's kind of a microcosm of, of high school, if you will. You know, they're nowhere near as large as the majority of institutions that we're talking about. So then you have a popularity contest going on pretty much. So you join these organizations and you become the center of attention on these campuses. Well, in particular, I mean, I'm thinking of when we would have our different Greek weeks, you know, we would do the step shows and the different parties and things of that nature. And it was just, it was it was like all eyes on me. You know, and because you were in an organization that was quote unquote coveted on that particular campus, it was you were under a microscope all the time and and you just don't get that at the majority institutions because you have so many more students and most of them are not minorities. So they're not really focused on what the minority group is doing, but at an HBCU, that's all there is. So everybody's focused on what a particular organization is doing. Right. You know, 
You know, so it's to join an organization such as a fraternity, that's like you prove to the masses that you've you've achieved the, the pinnacle of manliness, if you will, to, to have crossed the burning sands at HBCU, which, you know, I don't know if it has its has its definite pertinence, but it that's what it is. <laughs> you yeah. know, so well, I mean, I'll give the opposite perspective, right? Because I joined my fraternity at when I was at the majority institution, right? Right, right. And so, you know, it's like there, it's not necessarily kind of trying to elevate above the masses. It's more so trying to establish yourself, period, and to mm-hmm. find people who are of like minds and, and who are who have mutual interests and who, frankly, look right. like you. You're trying to develop a band of people that with whom you can navigate through this weird, weird world that we call a majority institution. And so I I think there's just a general difference in the motivation Mm -hmm. for joining these organizations. And that's not to say, like, I mean, obviously we hung out with all of the Greek organizations at the HBCUs in the area. But it was just what you what you described I mean, I don't mean to cut you off, but what you've described essentially is a microcosm of what the existence or experience is at an HBCU. You were trying to create the experience that we had innately at Morehouse at your majority institution. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We were trying to recreate it. And the thing is, obviously, what was happening was that a lot of the students who were a part of fraternities at my institution came from institutions like Morehouse, like through the dual degree programs, right? Mm-hmm. We all came mm-hmm. through the dual degree programs. And, and, you know, if you were unfortunate enough to be on a college, on a campus where maybe they were off the yard or something, you had to wait until you got to that majority institution if you wanted to join that organization. And so they had this experience in their minds where they knew what it was like. And they were trying to recreate it. So I think you're really right, AJ. And I feel like that's absolutely what I was doing. I was trying to recreate what I what I thought I would have seen at Morehouse. Our situation was quite unique in that even though I was initiated at Tuskegee, there was a brotherhood that extended to Auburn University because some of our members were instrumental in chartering that chapter at Auburn. So there was a close-knit family there. So when I left Tuskegee and enrolled at Auburn, it was like, I didn't miss miss anything. Everybody knew me. It was just like, just moving on to another chapter. So it was was an interesting experience. It really was. Well, I'll give you a funny story. So, I mean, obviously... And when you think about the AUC, you have all of these schools where, you know, people are are out of the house for the first time. They're really getting a chance to experience college life. And then you have the city of Atlanta, which is a social mecca. You have these situations where, AJ, you can attest to this, where the party buses come to the schools and take you out to the clubs throughout the city. Mm hmm. And so, you know, you, we have some fun stories about those nights. Exactly. You as a as a young kid on a college campus, you got all these black people around you and you got all your friends around you and you're trying to go on a party bus into a city that is considered a black Mecca. 
lots of funny things happen. <laughs> and so, like, I have one story in particular, Adrian. I hope you don't mind me telling this story about a um, a bubble party that we were supposed to go to, a phone party, <laughs> phone party. <laughs> I figured this was coming up as soon as you said the buses and party. I was like, oh, he's getting ready to tell the story. <laughs> So, obviously, you know, clubs have little promotions and things to try to get people to come, especially college students, because college students are going to be the ones that, that are going to come and they're going to pay money. And we were supposed to go to what was supposed to be a phone party at a club. So, you know, we go out and we're in our, you know, phone wear, getting ready to get wet in the club. And we're walking around. We see people in their nice gear, like they're going out to a dance club, a nice bar or something. And, you know, we're looking at them like, hmm, I wonder who's going to the phone party. So, you know, being naive and being kids, we really didn't pay attention to it. Getting on the bus, we really didn't see a lot of people who were dressed for a phone party. We're like, okay, yeah, that's all right, man. We're going to have fun, you know. So it became increasingly obvious as we progressed through the night that there was no such phone party. So what did end up happening, AJ? We ended up walking off the bus, <laughs> seeing that we were the only three dudes. With wife beaters on and tank tops. I had my FUBU tank top on back in the day. We still rocking the FUBU back then. And we walked walked right back on that bus and went home. And your roommate was not my friend for at least a good week and a half. <laughs> but the thing <laughs> is, the way the reason I say this, the reason I present this story is because it illustrates one of the bad things about an HBCU campus. So... If I had a, a similar situation happen on a majority campus, people would look at me like I was weird and actually say something because the community was so close-knit. If I saw another black person, I knew that person. And they weren't going to let me go out like that. But HBCUs can be cliquish in some ways. Right. And More so if you aren't part of a certain clique, they're just going to look at you like, what in the world is he doing? All right? I'm going to let him do what he's going to do. He's going to look like a fool. And I think right. that's kind of the experience that we had in that particular situation. Is that the world star hip hop mentality, Chris? <laughs> okay, yeah. I think that's an Urban Dictionary word of the day. The Urban Dictionary word of the day is. I have no idea what the hell you were saying. World star hip hop mentality, Chris. We just gonna so. let them. We just I gonna let so. them walk into this trap and laugh at it <laughs> on the other side. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right, I'd like to go ahead and wrap this up because we could talk all day about this, but I'd like to sincerely thank my real brother for coming on and talking to me and my uh, play brother. I appreciate it, Daryl. <laughs> play cousins, play cousins. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Never like a play cousin. <laughs> <laughs> so we're moving on to the segment. It's called Good Deed Dude. And it's the time where we acknowledge good things that are being done in the communities and across the world by people who are influential or just everyday Joes. Good deed, dude. So, AJ, I have a good deed, dude, for you. Okay. I I'm actually recently participated in the Greater Boston Morehouse College Alumni Association Youth Leadership Conference. And awesome. So this was a conference for young men, young men of color in grades 7 through 12 
and it exposed them to different areas of professionalism whether it was actually exposing them to many different career paths or just the things that they need to be able to do to be successful you know the kids who were there learn how to tie ties kids who were there learn how to dress for success and how to engage in entrepreneurship and i particularly led a session in science technology engineering and mathematics trying to show the kids some cool things that they may not have necessarily seen in their class and try to engage them and get them into thinking about science and technology as a career. And I just want to say big ups to the Morehouse College Alumni Association for putting on something like that. Because you think about college alumni associations, really it's almost like a social scene of sorts. It's not necessarily they're doing community work and they're getting out there and, and doing stuff to better the area around them. And, you know, it's almost in a sense like it's a fraternal organization and what they do. So, you know, our fraternity, we do a lot of community service, but an alumni association doing that? Man, that goes back to when I was talking about Morehouse being like a fraternity of sorts, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say good deed due to Greater Boston Morehouse College Alumni Association for putting on something like that. I, I'm right there with you, Chris. Excellent, excellent. Clap that out. Clap. Hey, look, and I want to go ahead and say, man, I'm proud of you. Good deed due to you, man, for, for everything you do for the young guys, the young men and women who you're helping out here to just to bring a passion about sciences, man. You know, that's it's sad that in this country right now, you know, kids are really losing a love for the, the, the sciences and mathematics, and, and we need to, to bring that to the forefront. So it's good that there are people like you who are pushing that agenda. So thanks, Chris, and good deed to you too, sir. Hey, I appreciate that, sir. So, um, you know, I like to read the Huffington Post. That's one of my favorite uh, periodicals, and you know, I end up reading it online more, more often than not. And every once in a while, you, you, you come across some real feel-good stories about things that, you know, people are out here doing, man. And it's good to know that there are good people out here. And so often we, we get ca so caught up in the negativity of the world, you know, the next person being killed or, you know, the next person committing a crime or some other scandal that's happening in government somewhere that, you know, we, we get locked in on negativity and we forget about the positive. And I just had a really good story uh, that I wanted to share. Um, it was in the... Uh, it was on March 15th uh, that the story was, was written, and the uh, article is entitled, The Incredible Story of a Homeless Man Who Risked His Life for a Stranger. Well, as the story goes, um, it's a gentleman, and he's unnamed, in Colorado. Uh, and Colorado, if you don't know, has a large homeless population. And it was stated in the uh, article that, you know, if you're driving through Colorado you're, or, or, like, maybe a major city in Colorado like, like Denver, you're likely to see a homeless person on, you know, nearly every corner. Uh, well, uh, it was reported that there was a gentleman who stands on off off the highway. Uh, I think it's I-25 in Colorado. Uh, you know, there's an exit to Colorado Boulevard, a large street with about four lanes of traffic on each side of the median. Every day, she passes the same man who stands on the corner of Colorado Boulevard asking for spare change or for a chance at a job. Well, this one day in particular, when she pulled up next to the man, he began doing something out of the ordinary. He began jogging down Colorado Boulevard. Next thing she knew, she had thrown, he had, excuse me, she knew he had thrown down his sign and started sprinting into the middle of the street. That's when she saw the car that was driving diagonally across three lanes of traffic and headed for the median. 
The homeless man, who's probably about 35 years old, ran to the side of the car, attempted to push the car back in the right direction, knocked on the window, but to no avail. He ran across the small median into the four lanes of oncoming, oncoming traffic, gesturing madly for cars to stop. Thankfully, all 20 cars or so managed to stop just in time to avoid hitting him, and the out-of-control vehicle came barreling across the median and across the four lanes of traffic, where with just seconds ago, cars had been traveling about 35 miles an hour. The homeless man dropped back into the front of the car and attempted to slow it down again. By this time, my sister and I and others were able to pull over and help the man stop the car before it ran into an office building on the other side of the road. So... You know, and at the end, it says, here's this man who likely spends every day getting ignored by people who are trying not to make eye contact with him so they don't feel bad about not giving him money. Yet he didn't even hesitate to risk his life to save a lady and 20 others who almost crashed into into her. As it turns out, that woman who was in the car had a seizure while driving and passed out. And had he have not acted in the way that he did, that woman and several others may not be here today. So wherever this gentleman is, you know, I hope you get a chance to hear this one day, but I really just want to go ahead and say good deed, dude. You put your life on the line to save somebody else's life selflessly, and I will forever and always be grateful for people like that. So good deed, dude. Good deed, dude. Clap it up. Yeah. And what do you think about that, Chris? I mean, it, it never fails to see people put their lives on the line for other other people, and you know, I just, I just love to see that there are still good human beings out there, you know? Hey, absolutely, man. I, I think it's definitely an understatement that people can really do things for someone out of the goodness of their heart. It just doesn't exist that much out there. And for hey, someone man. to risk their life, that's just an additional level, obviously. Well, you know what, Chris? I have to disagree with you on that. I, I feel like it exists, and it's there. It's prevalent. Like, we as human beings, man, most people do good for others. Most people really want to see other people happy and healthy. And, and uh, you know, I just feel like it's underreported. I just feel like we here, we're inundated with all the negativity of the world. But people rarely stop to say, hey, I saw something amazing today where someone saved somebody else's life or someone did something great. I saw a little kid help an old lady across the street, you know? And that's a big deal to me. And I wish that it was more positive reporting than there was negative reporting out there. So yeah. maybe maybe we're we're at the forefront of it, Chris, and Dude Logic will be the, the show that'll that'll change the game. Given all the positive stories out there, letting you all know that Everybody isn't just out to get you. Everyone's not yeah. going to run you over to try to get to their goal. Right, yes, sir. Yeah, man. It's like we said, man, a little courtesy goes a long way. If I let you over in front of me, just put a hand up and say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'm kind of sad, actually, that my good deed dude, my next good deed dude has to come after your inspiring story here. Okay. Uh, because it is actually about, also about a homeless person. But it's about the other side, man. Homeless people who who aren't necessarily doing, who aren't necessarily being good citizens. All right. So I have a friend who was telling me a story on Sunday, and it was about he and his girlfriend were going to go to a fast food restaurant to get something to eat, get a bite to eat really quickly. And they went in, and 
they were in line to actually get their food and a lady just burst through the door frantic wondering where her purse was so apparently she had just moved to the united states and she had just moved to the area and went to that restaurant to get something to eat she left her purse in the chair and forgot about it just plain forgot about it with all the moving and everything and she came back to find out that her purse was gone now my friend actually saw a man who happened to be a homeless man walking away from the store with a purse in his hand and so he took the lady and told her that Mm -hmm. so you know she was freaking out and everything trying to call the police or whatnot while she called the police he actually ran out of his spot in line and ran down to get the man okay so um, did he catch up with him he caught up with him and what he said to the man was hey you know that there were cameras in the store you know you can go to jail for stealing this purse right so at that point, when the man realized that he was on camera, he just started breaking down like, oh, I thought it was my girlfriend's person. Oh, I'm sorry. Take it back or anything. So he took them. Uh, well, actually, by this time, yeah, police with him. But he took them back behind a dumpster and showed them like the remains of the person, everything. Turns out everything was still there. He didn't right. steal anything at that point. And the lady got her purse back. Now, out of the generosity of her own heart, the lady did not press charges against the guy. Excellent. That's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Like, I hope that he learned a lesson that day. That, Absolutely. You know, he was given a second, he was given a reprieve, man. And, and it's not often that, you know, people, especially homeless populations, man, it's unfortunate, but... Uh, People don't look too kindly on some of the things that they do. And, and, you know, oftentimes when they're just trying to survive, they're, you know, incarcerated for things that, you know, sometimes I feel like they shouldn't be. But I'm glad that this man was given a second chance and and hopefully he uses it appropriately. So good deed dude goes to both your friend for chasing down somebody, you know, because there's people out here crazy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, For chasing somebody down on behalf of another woman. And then for that lady to, 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 to... to have it within her heart to forgive another human being. So, good deed dudes all around. Yep, good deed dudes. All right. All right, so you got a, you got a last good deed dude for us, AJ? No, you know what, Chris? That's really all I had today. You know? Um, I didn't look up too much else. Uh, or, or, you know, right off the top of my head, there's nothing that's really sticking out. Well, I want to say a special good deed dude to you. Okay. Or... Uh, for your work on Dude Logic, being the mouth and all, <laughs> getting us guests and everything. And, you know, this is episode 12, right? We're in double digits, man. Whoever thought we'd get here. Hey, man. You know, when we started out, and I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you very much, man. When we started out, man, you know, it's it's funny. Like, we really did. We started out with a little brainchild, a little nugget. And we, we decided we wanted to, to share our voice with the world, man. And, and uh, it's crazy that we've taken it this far, but... You know, I can't take that without giving it back to you. Uh, there's no way I'd be able to make this show happen or we'd be able to make this show happen if it wasn't for what you bring to the show, man. So good deed, dude. And uh, I look forward to so many more episodes, man. It's like this is something that really has become a passion and I'm, and I'm excited about having it uh, as an outlet in our lives. So good stuff, man. Good stuff. Indeed, just dude. keep doing it, man. Just keep keep doing it. You know, it's like, why stop now? <laughs> and everybody else out there, if you have something that you want to feature on Good Deed, dude, even if it's yourself doing something, send it in. Email us, tweet us, 
Instagram us, whatever. Facebook, all that stuff. We'll give you all that information at the end of the show. Yep, you gotta wait. You gotta wait. <laughs> Anticipation is worth it, man. Delayed right. gratification. <laughs> all right, it's now time for AJ's gripes. It's the time where AJ comes in and he gripes about something that's bothering him. So, what's your gripe, AJ? AJ's gripes. AJ's gripes. AJ's gripes. You know what, man? Uh, I want to gripe about the one negative. A suggestion that I incurred, uh, excuse me, encountered in uh, Savannah. You know, I was hanging out at a restaurant overlooking. It was like, you know, a nice little balcony restaurant overlooking the street. And why did I have this one security guard come up to me and ask me to move off the railing as if I was getting ready to throw something at the people in the crowd below me? Uh, and I was the only person that he made that statement to. So I'm not going to speculate as to why he picked me out of the crowd of everybody else. But I want to gripe about this one security guard. And I'm not going to name the restaurant because the restaurant was awesome. And I'm not going to take away business from them. But this one guy decided that he wanted to pick me out of a crowd to say, hey, back up. Uh, when I clearly wasn't doing anything but trying to take a picture of the crowd and a selfie at that. Don't tell anybody I was trying to take a selfie, Chris. <laughs> you, just yeah, told, you just told everybody. Just, just leaning out, trying to take a picture of my face with the crowd behind me. Like, this is crazy. Wish you guys were here. And I got accosted, Chris. Accosted. Verbally. Man, you should turn this into a gripe about security guards in general feeling like they have too much power. Man. <laughs> Glorified. Glorified police officers. Some of these guys. Top flight security the world, Craig. Running around like Day Day. Trying to hit people in. Uh, yeah, come on, man. Come on. I understand it's a job, man. Somebody has to do it. And I'm, I'm happy that you have it, man. And, and you're getting a paycheck for it. Because we all deserve to be out here and, you know, able to support ourselves, etc. But, dude. Anybody and everybody who takes their job way too serious. Calm that down. That's AJ's gripes. AJ's Gripes. AJ's Gripes. Alright, we've reached the end of another show. Our 12th show. Man, can't believe it, dude. Cannot believe it. We've yeah. made it this far. I just want to say, for anybody who's listening to this show, you do not want to miss number 13. It is going to be ridiculous. I can't give it away. But just think Freaky Friday, Friday the 13th, lucky number 13. There's going to be something crazy. And uh, we're going to bring some new guests and we're going to bring some old ones. <laughs> just got to be ready. That's all you got to say. Just got to be ready. That's all you got to say, huh? That's all I'm going to say, man. I gave him a lot. I gave him way more than I should have, Chris. <laughs> just, just make sure you come back for number 13, y'all. Please do come back. Hey, AJ, let them know where you, they can find you. Man, as always, you can find me on my blog at ajsmeltdown.com, A-J-S-M-E-L-T-D-O-W-N, at ajsmeltdown on Twitter, and at AJ underscore the underscore trainer on Instagram. Chris, where, do, where can the people find you? All right, uh, go to Twitter at CGSkeezy, 
And for the podcast, www.dudelogicpodcast.com, www.facebook.com slash dudelogicpod. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at dudelogicpod. That's at dudelogicpod. And you can send in emails. Do it old school. Dudelogicpodcast at gmail.com. For AJ and for my brother, Daryl. Man, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to us. We'll see you next time. Peace.